1: The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The Gist.
2: It's Monday, January fifth, two thousand fifteen. Though I'm still saying two thousand fourteen on all my podcasts from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And what is the point of being in a hate group if people are going to wind up liking you?
0: I'm not familiar with who that group was, but uh, you know, from what I've seen about it, I detest hate
2: groups of any kind. That's Rep. Steve Scalise, who spoke before the European American Unity and Rights Organization, Euro. 12 years ago, and he is in hot water over it. He rebutted accusations of racism in the strongest possible terms, though not over the clearest possible lines. Your political life hangs in the balance and you couldn't get to a studio, Steve? So here's the New York Times on Scalise. By the way, the Italian in me really objects to the fact that he calls himself Scalise. Anyway, the Times says... He will go anywhere and talk to anyone, Mr. Scalise's friends and allies say. And then they write that many of his supporters have pointed to absent-mindedness as an excuse for his wandering into a political danger zone. Absent-mindedness. Where are my keys? Are brown people inferior? Wait, did I miss my anniversary? Do Jews have horns? I do not think, for the record, that we should punish people for a dozen-year-old speeches, and we didn't even hear the content of the speech, but we do think we know what's swirling between the ears that the speech landed on. But the Scalise defense has been weird. First says, I'm a Catholic, so that means I'm not a racist. Okay. Okay. And then there's this, another quote in the Times, Mike Walsworth, a fellow Republican legislator who was Mr. Scalise's roommate in Baton Rouge, recalled returning to the apartment to see Mr. Scalise poring over legislation and unwinding in front of the television. We were both Seinfeld freaks, said Mr. Walsworth, recalling their fondness for the soup Nazi episode. How does fondness for Nazis with or without the soup modifier get into an article when your only job is to portray this guy as being antithetical to the neo-Nazi movement maybe Seinfeld Jewish name <laughs> open-minded i don't know ay 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 as members of the European American Unity and Rights organization were not heard to mutter hey look from what I understand, the gist is enjoyed by what I thought was a simple Arizona group of retirees. They are the widowed, homebound, IT experts, Huma. But now I realize that Whitey might have some nefarious purposes, and just by speaking to them, I have disqualified myself from a leadership position. And yet, like Steve Scalise, I seem to be hurting my case. The more I express how much I want to take this new job while simultaneously decrying the accusation of racism. I mean, everywhere I've been saying, I just want to whip. Just let me whip. I know how to whip. I was born to whip. It seems to be doing more damage to my standing. But I like Seinfeld, and I'm not an anti-dentite. On the show today, I spiel about the price of a barrel of oil. But what about the barrel of oil just might surprise you. And we debut They Might Be Giant song, as we will every Monday throughout the year. But first... Mario Cuomo, the governor of New York, father of the current governor of New York, could have been a Supreme Court justice, might have been president, died four days ago. He spoke, thought, and campaigned well. But was Mario Cuomo right? (laughs) Mario Cuomo passed away January 1st and in the days since he has been much praised and remembered, rightly so. I've come across analyses of his mind, his rhetoric, his personality and his politics. But what about his policy prescriptions? How does he stand on that score? I caught this speech. It was a 1992 speech on C-SPAN.
1: On Thursday, he was the guest speaker at a Time Magazine luncheon in New York. The Democratic governor is now serving his third term as chief executive of New York. And what I thought we'd do
2: is play some parts of that speech, not that it was the most important speech, not that it was akin to his speech at the Democratic National Convention, but just that it lays out where he thought the country was, where it was going. And let's bring in two of the best people to weigh in on if he was right. So I'm joined now by Adam Davidson, the founding editor of NPR's Planet Money. Hello, Adam. Hey, Mike. And Jacob Weisberg, who is chairman of the Slate Group. Thanks for coming in, Jacob. Thank you, Mike. And you wrote for New York Magazine a great piece on Cuomo, and in doing so...
3: You develop something of a relationship with the guy? Well, I spent a lot of time working on that piece. It was a deep dive into his policy. And I remember going up to Albany and sitting in this sort of cavernous office of his and spending a really long time talking to him about his record, which he was very happy to do. He almost seemed a little underemployed at that point. You know, he was uh, he was spending a lot of time trying to just sort of defend himself and make the case for himself.
2: Yeah, You know, no one really says about Mario Cuomo, they'll talk about the rhetoric and they'll talk about the wavering, whether to run for president, but you can't necessarily point to lots of things in New York state and say, but for Cuomo's 12 years, we wouldn't have this, or we wouldn't have that. Or maybe you can, but it seems that in terms of like tangible accomplishments, maybe Cuomo was actually a little underwhelming, do you think?
3: I think it was a real period of drift, his governorship. I think he inherited a uh, government that was had gotten very bloated and ineffective and that had the wrong priorities in a lot of ways, including this huge emphasis on prison building and criminal justice system. Uh, and I don't think he didn't really, he didn't really change that. He, he perpetuated it. You know, he would give these beautiful speeches. I mean, he was, a, he was an orator of kind of Roman... Proportions, you know, and people would just be mesmerized listening to him. And you sort of assume that he was kind of going back at the end of the day and putting some of those ideas into practice. But I think what I found when I tried to get deeply into it was that you know he would he would say, "Well, I haven't accomplished one big thing. I've accomplished a lot of little things." And sure, he accomplished some little things, but I think it wasn't wasn't a good period for the state.
2: And he also criticized politics for making that necessary. He said, "I can't be president because I can't say something over and over again." And he also said that, and I didn't just concentrate on one big thing. And he kind of criticized that as being a wrong way to govern.
3: You know, I I think he took uh, the governorship at a period that was, uh, first of all, sort of crucible period for the Democratic Party when it was emerging out of this traditional liberalism and reorienting itself around a more reformist type of liberalism that Bill Clinton really represented at the national level. And also a period when at the state level, there was a huge amount of uh, really interesting liberal experimentation going on around uh, education, around welfare, around the social programs that were, uh, in a lot of ways, sort of breaking down in their effectiveness. And I think what you have to say about Cuomo was he didn't really participate in any of that. He was a defender of the grand liberal vision and maybe the best defender it ever had, certainly at that period. But he wasn't so interested in this sort of tweaking of programs to make them work better,
2: right? Adam Davidson, give me a sense of uh, where we were
4: economically as a nation at that time. So, we had gone through this decade of incredible growth. You know, that there had been this period in the late seventies, early eighties, where there really was this feeling that the U.S. is over and our economy is over. And then we had very healthy growth. We had the stock market crash of eighty-seven, but really robust, robust growth. An exciting period. And then came the ninety-one, ninety-two recession, which, looking back, if you now look with the with hindsight, was a fairly minor event. But it it had, and I, I remember I graduated from college in in ninety-two, so I, it's a I very much remember what it was like uh, going into the workforce at that age. I mean, today, after what we've gone through, it looks almost cute or quaint. But but this feeling of the entire economy being off the skids and that we were headed towards some kind of apocalypse. Of course, what we didn't know is we were about to have another eight years of unbelievable growth and that this blip really would look just like a blip. But we didn't know that at this moment. So here he is from this 1992 speech. And what
2: he's doing right now is criticizing the essentially the theme of the republicans campaign in 1988
1: they were able to divert everybody the way they're trying to divert people now with issues other than the substantial problems they didn't talk about deficit they didn't mention debt they didn't talk about the eroding competitiveness internationally they talked about willie horton they talked about the pledge of allegiance they talked about boston harbor and they got everybody transfixed with it and it worked miraculously well They got you arguing about whether or not Willie Horton was racism the way they'll get you arguing about whether or not when they talk about Murphy Brown, that's a legitimate statement of values the way many of our columnists think it is. Don't you think he should have spent the time talking about deficit, debt, drugs, crime, violence, deteriorating conditions, China?
2: Debt, deficit, drugs. These seem to be the big issues then, were they, Adam?
4: our government debt and deficit had been rising steadily through, I should say, Democrat and Republican administrations for a few decades at that point. But he didn't know that we were about to hit a point where we were going to erase the deficit and and shrink the debt quite a bit. That being said, what really struck me in this speech is here's this great liberal firebrand talking about Republicans not caring about debt and deficit. And today we're at a time when The Republicans are the debt hawks, the deficit hawks, and many Democrats are saying, we really actually need more debt right now. We need to take on a larger deficit so that we can goose the economy. Part of this is is just partisanship. Whoever's in power tends to...
2: Owns that deficit. Yeah.
4: yeah. Let's play the next clip, which
1: uh, I thought was interesting, too. We are very weak, fundamentally and long range. We used to be the people who made the goods which we sold to other nations and other people in other nations, took their yen, took their marks for our products, then held the wealth and loaned it out to people who needed it and charged them interest in dollars. We were the makers. We were the creditors. We were the lenders. Now we're the buyers. We used to make all the radios and TVs. We used to make all the automobiles. Now they make most of them.
2: So, Adam... Hearing a politician bemoaning the fact that we don't make TVs, it seems a little antiquated now and maybe unfair because maybe every politician from 1992 said this. But was his prescription
4: accurate? Definitely not for then. So the year that the U.S. stopped being the world's leading manufacturer was last year or the year before, depending on which Chinese statistics you trust. So we had another 20 years of being the world's leading manufacturer after he said this. It's just an interesting detail that we actually do make cars. We make a lot of cars. And most cars you buy in America were made in America. And we really don't want to be in the radio and TV business. It's a very low-end, low-margin business. And it's probably good that, for the most part, we import those from China, although obviously that caused dislocation. What's undergirding my thinking about hearing Mario Cuomo talk in the late 80s, early 90s, is he was governor of a state that absolutely embodied the dramatic transformation in our economy, how we make money. And it's basically the gulf between Wall Street and upstate New York. So Wall Street has grown dramatically more powerful in the last 20, 30 years. It has, it, it is, unimaginably larger and more important in the global economy, for good and ill, obviously. But it's an enormous source of wealth for the state of New York. And then we have this simultaneous upstate, which is a very old economy, a very rust belt economy. But I don't hear Cuomo talking about things like the desperate need to improve educational opportunities for the children of factory workers so they might have a shot at this new economy. There's this hearkening back to an old economy, to a pre-1990s economy that just I don't think was the right prescription for that time. It's interesting, Adam. I've been doing a lot of reading about
3: Ronald Reagan, and Cuomo was seen as Reagan's antithesis. But one thing they had in common was this nostalgic vision of America. The difference was that Cuomo's really was backward-looking. He went to this time, you know, which was his formative period in the '50s and '60s, and this was when America's great. was great. Let's make it great like that again. Reagan somehow conjured all of that, but, but was able to point it forward in a way that I think Cuomo wasn't able to do. And related to that, and something I think you heard in that clip, is um, Cuomo's remarkable parochialism. This was a guy who didn't leave the country. He didn't even like to leave the state when he was One governor. One reason
2: why he didn't want to run for president. Yeah, because he, yeah. he
3: didn't want to have to live in Washington. I mean, he yeah. famously didn't like to sleep away from home. And he had this idea of the rest of the world that was also really... Rooted in time, he wasn't. He didn't understand what the what was going on in the Japanese economy, or the German economy, or the Chinese economy. It was it was an idea. It's funny that him. you
2: say the Japanese economy because this next clip we're gonna play talks. I think speaks to some uh, unacknowledged xenophobia. It was kind of shocking to hear it. Of course, I'm judging it through a uh, 2014 lens. Let's listen.
1: Bronx High School of Science used to be Brooklyn Tech, and Brooklyn Tech is making a comeback. Always have won 40 to 45, 46 percent of the Westinghouse scholarships nationally, science scholarships. Still do. In the old days, the names were Eisenberg, Galluccio, McCormick. Now they're names I can't pronounce. They're Japanese, Chinese, they're many of them, not all of them, but most of them indeed. Are imported these are not students that we raised up from our elementary schools from our kindergartens from PS 25 it's not like that you had to bring this power in that is a sign of your weakness thank God we have the good sense to invite them thank God they have the Goodness to come,
2: Adam Davidson, alum of Stuyvesant High School. Yeah, I went to, to, yeah. yeah. I went to I Stuyvesant you High School. Pronounce your yeah, yeah. Right? Davids-
1: Davidson. <laughs> H- yeah.
2: Wait, in 1992, were you in Stuyvesant High School? No, I graduated in '88. Uh, um,
4: <laughs> <laughs> back when it was just good golf yeah. Farms and <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Galuchios, you know, Native Americans who've always been <laughs> yeah. here. First of all, a factual statement: it was Korean names and Indian names Not in that Japanese. period of time. Not there no Japanese. Not Japanese. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very few. Um, but it, I mean, that I think a transparently atrocious thing to say. Obviously, the the Eisenbergs and the Galuchios were also immigrants. Obviously, it is one of the great strengths of America, as he did attest, that, that we're able to attract these people. And obviously, it's not a good comparison. I think, as Jacob said, there's this sense throughout the speech that there's some greatness and the rest of the world is somehow messing with that greatness. And that greatness exists in the past and stopping the rest of the world and going backwards will get us that greatness again. Look, there is a very real and very deep conversation to be had right now in 2014 about the nature of globalization, the fact that the benefits of globalization have not been widespread, and they've been concentrated at the top, and the pain has been concentrated at the bottom. And those are very real issues. I don't want to shy away from that at all. But the idea that the way to analyze the rest of the world is to block it off. I think it's particularly interesting with Cuomo as the governor of New York state. There are a few states in the country that have benefited more from globalization. New York state, in total, globalization has been a wonderful, wonderful boon. We're talking about the governor of maybe you know, second to California, the main beneficiary of this globalization. So it's it's weird to me. uh, Cuomo loved immigration
3: because he thought it was part of the story of America, and he understood it was his story, and he was a wonderful advocate for immigration. But he didn't understand globalization as part of the story of America, and he was really just against it.
2: We talk about the uh, Reagan Democrat, sometimes seen as the Archie Bunker Democrat, who's now a Republican, an ethnic type from Queens, as Archie Bunker was, who Reagan appealed to. And I think that Cuomo is still arguing against Reagan and the way to do or the Reagan voter and the way to do that is to say yeah I embrace immigrants which I defined as people from Europe essentially and yes you are right to be a little bit afraid of Asian immigrants or they're not they're not part of this story and it leads me question for you Jacob you know if he had run and won in 92 would his policies have diverged greatly from Bill Clinton he always made fun of Clinton for his triangulation but it does seem that Clinton was more of a what everyone to call it a moderate or someone willing to take on welfare. Would Cuomo have been more of a unreconstructed liberal policy-wise on the, if he ran for president?
3: I think he would have been very different uh, because right at the, at the outset, Clinton came in with this sort of reinventing government agenda he had a lot of hard cuts to the budget in addition to some modest tax increases in 1993. And he embraced globalization
4: and pushed NAFTA. And I don't think Cuomo would have done any of those things. You know, this gets to the heart of actually today's current political uh, debate within the Democratic Party. I mean, the sort of the people want Elizabeth Warren to take on Hillary Clinton. I mean, we're we're seeing this Today, once in again, in a way, it's the same matchup yeah. again. In, yes. in a so way it's Cuomo like say, is Warren. Yeah. I mean, Cuomo
2: they, Cuomo they occupy the same niche. Yeah. yeah,
4: and what the intelligentsia of the Democratic Party, I think, most of the intelligentsia would have said in 1987, in 1992, in 2005, in 2006, and now find it harder to say, would be we have to embrace globalization. There's enormous growth and opportunity there. That the benefits far outweigh the the costs, and um, we have to move away from a union dominated party, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. There is a left wing of the democratic party that that has a counterfactual they have an argument that there is a version of history in which the president in in the90s um, wouldn 't have promoted nafta wouldn 't have um, Led to I mean Bush eventually did it, but D.R. Kefta and these other free trade agreements um, wouldn't have deregulated Wall Street quite so aggressively, and um, and and so the let's just for the sake of argument assume Cuomo would have been much closer to that view. Where would we be now? And th- that so you're talking about what did happen versus a theor- a, yeah. a guess mm-hmm. at what might have happened, and so that in a way is the animating debate right now. Is is um, should we have unwound that the kind of the the anti Larry Summers anti um, Robert Rubin part of the party saying they ruined everything. We'd have a more prosperous economy. We'd have a more um, we'd have a weaker Wall Street, but a stronger middle class, stronger unions. I'll reveal my bias, which is that um, neither side is right. That that what we that the world changed so fundamentally. Um, in the '70s and '80s, because of trade and technology, that we actually need to build new institutions that have never come before. So, so, um, so, sort of arguing between two poles that made sense in the '90s is no longer relevant. And well, let's
2: we, and let's now go to a man who co-wrote a book with Robert Rubin. Well, yeah, K. I mean, yeah. I don't, I
4: don't need to defend
3: that that view right now. But I do think what's interesting. You mentioned Elizabeth Warren through the 1980s and until bin, Bill Clinton was elected, the Cuomo view. Was the dominant view in the Democratic Party, um, represented by uh, Mondale in '84, slightly less so in a different way by Dukakis. But that yeah. was that was still the you know the the pro labor interest group dominated kind of big government, un, largely unreconstructed big government was still the view. Bill Clinton changed the center of gravity in the party and made this pro globalization, pro market, uh, reformist view of the world, the dominant view. So now the Elizabeth Warrens and Mario Cuomo were here around today would be the outsiders in the party rather than the insiders. And they would be the one pushing it to change, to go back to this earlier view. And that's what I think the big change is.
2: Yeah. And it's funny because I don't think voters... Uh actually embraced Clinton for that view. They thought he got the economy but I don't know if they specifically knew that he was going to break with what you know, someone like Paul Songas, who he ran against in those primaries, was endorsing or what the liberal view was. It didn't seem right, well, mean, so
3: Clinton, apparent. Clinton was you know a genius a little bit like Reagan at getting the different factions of the party to all think he agreed with them. But mm-hmm. you know, he was chairman of the Democratic Leadership Council. He had this reformist record in Arkansas. I don't think what he did in 93 came as, as a surprise or should have come as a surprise. His,
2: I think, this has been really useful, and I've enjoyed the substance of it. And I don't want to go out on something that's not substantive, but his rhetoric was just so outstanding in so many ways, a pre-written speech, his mind, his intellect. So let's play this uh, last clip, which I just thought was an example of the fact that the guy could have done some version of stand-up comedy if he wanted to. Here he is talking about Ronald Reagan.
1: Sure, yeah, Why we should believe you. Well, Why shouldn't we believe you? I tell everybody my mother believed him, and, and she was very typical of a lot of Americans. She asked me in Italian. Me, Capelli, son of is that his hair? I said, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that whole attitude. And it's the truth. She said, Is it black? I said, That's what they say, Ma. He never touches it. How old is he? I said, 75. Really? Then she said, Natanic, God must love him. Everybody felt that way. How could you not like him? No, really. He got shot, remember? Oh, that's all right. Hi there. You know, I'm all right he was terrific in every movie he was ever in he always lost the girl remember in every movie he was the guy and the mother-in-law to be was always so proud oh i like him what a nice face hi there thomas hughes how are you great you're going to be my son-in-law great and then somebody like tyrone power would show up you know at the last minute and sweep the girl off her feet and he would be the best man as well you know he'd show up and give the bride away so you had to love him. You had to love him. And he told the American people that everything was going to be fine. And they said, terrific.
2: All right. So just on the rhetoric, I'm blown away by it. I enjoyed the bit of Italian, even though his son, Andrew Cuomo, or our mayor, Bill de Blasi, or Italian-American politicians. They don't lapse into actual Italian while giving speeches. And I think that there's something to be said for that.
4: And I, I would also say the rhetoric, re-listening to all those speeches, the rhetoric yeah. is not I mean, there is a rhetoric versus substance critique of of, of Cuomo, which Jacob has made amazingly in, in in that piece from so long ago. But there is some substance in his rhetoric. There was something going on that very few people saw, which was that we there was a broad consensus, a you know a center left all the way to right consensus that the future was untroublingly positive, that that globalization, more trade, more technology was gonna lift everybody up. And the truth is, some large segment of Americans, probably more than half, were gonna see many ways in which their their lives were going to be worse. And and we're still in that position today. And he did identify something that really was rotten and and that it would take another 20 years or 15 years for the broad, like, intellectual democratic consensus to to embrace. Well, it just occurred to me
2: when you say he identified something. He's a great op-ed columnist. He's a great crafter of language. He has great views in general. It's just the details about what to do next. That's not what you rely on an op-ed columnist for.
3: I mean, when you hear him speak or read one of these speeches, Cuomo loved language. He kept these voluminous diaries, which are beautifully written record of the period. He was deeply introspective and self-analytical. In a way, I sometimes look at him and think, this guy chose the wrong profession, because he didn't really like the mundane details of governing, the prose of politics, as he called it. He loved the poetry. And if he'd only been a writer, he would have been completely successful.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then he wouldn't have had to do those Doritos commercials, too. Mario Cuomo is uh, just a fascinating and, I think, singular figure in American politics. And I could say the same for my two guests, Adam Davidson and Jacob Weisberg. Thank you guys very much. Thank you, Mike. And here now is that Doritos commercial where Governor Cuomo co-starred with fellow outgoing governor Ann Richards of Texas. Be positive about
1: it because change can be very exciting. You're probably right, Mario.
0: I guess I'll get used to Doritos' new bag. There you
1: go. This year's big change is Doritos' more flavor, new shape, new bag. Too bad about the Cowboys, Ann.
2: There always won when I was governor. One great resolution you can make for the new year, maximize every minute and every dollar for your small business. Well, that's impossible, right? All right, let's cut off a little slice of that, a little nugget of that, and let's call that the possible. And the possible starts with stamps.com. Think about how much time you've wasted going to the post office, driving there, finding parking, realizing it's January 1st and they're not open, stuff like that. Stamps.com is the better way to get postage, you use your computer and your printer and you get official U.S. postage on any letter or package. And then the mailman picks it up. Does he always ring twice? Can't stand by that. But I do stand by the fact that Stamps.com gives you everything you do at the post office right from your desk at a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage Meters. So, right now, use the promo code THE GIST to get the special offer. It includes a no risk trial, a $110 bonus offer, a free digital scale, and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and enter the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. And now the spiel, roll out the barrels. In trading today, the price of oil dipped for a time below $50 a barrel. And I think it's high time we talk about the price of a barrel of oil. No one has been talking about the price of a barrel of oil. Wait, what's that you say? Everyone's been talking about the price of a barrel of oil? Fracking shale, OPEC, carbon emissions, that's all about a barrel of oil? Yes, it is. It's about the oil. I am here to talk about the barrel. How much is a barrel? When it comes to oil, it's 42 gallons. Why is it 42 gallons? It's kind of complicated. Suffice it to say that that decision was made in Titusville, Pennsylvania in the 19th century. So, a little bit of long history. King Richard III of England defined the wine puncheon as a cask holding 84 gallons and a tierce as holding 42 gallons. Cut to Edwin Drake's discovery In 1859, of oil in Titusville, PA, the 42-gallon barrel was the barrel size in Titusville. Thereafter, it became the de facto barrel size for all of oildom. We're talking all of it. We're talking the light crude, the medium crude, the heavy crude. I liken my oil to my comedy, so light crude, that's like Monty Python. Medium crude, MTV's Jackass. Heavy crude, Pink Flamingos. All right, so oil is 50 bucks a barrel. That's just for the oil. What about the barrel? I went to the Bradbury Barrel Company. A 20 by 30 barrel sold via the Peach Sweet Hotel Company costs $60. That's just for the barrel. All right. These are fancy, if not actually schmancy barrels, but they are barrels. I also do have to say they're not all that practical. In fact, upon visiting the Bradbury Barrel webpage, I found that the majority of their offerings are antithetical to the containment of liquid. They apparently are in the liquid emancipation movement given the following offerings. Here we go. They have on their webpage the half barrel, the quarter barrel, the window barrel, which is a barrel top and a barrel bottom, and in between nothing, just a hole, they have something called the false bottom barrel. There is the chuck from the mailroom will spit water directly into your face barrel. Not really a barrel, just chuck. These are some terrible barrels. I have no idea who approved these barrel designs. Maybe there's an interesting family drama going on in the Bradbury Barrel Company. All right, let's say maybe the son, Cooper, he was a visionary. He wanted to take barrels in places they've never been to be a barrel disruptor. But the dad, Cooper Sr., all right, the names in the barrel biz are a little bit limited. But Cooper Sr., whose nickname Slats, Slats knew that Bradbury Barrel meant something. He knew that to be the at least fifth or sixth name in barrels the world over there was one simple promise we give you a barrel that barrel will hold your liquids but no there was a generational tug of war blood was spilled okay everything was spilled because those quarter barrels make no freaking sense so that's the dysfunctional Bradbury barrel travails. What about the highly functional barrels able to collect your rainwater runoff? I price these rain barrels. The good idea RB55 Blue, big blue recycled rain barrel, 55 gallon, as the name implies, 7890. Fiskers 58 gallon salsa rain barrel system with diverter, $130.14. RTS Home Accents, 50-gallon rainwater collection barrel with brass spigot green. Ninety-five, ninety-nine. right, so all those barrels do hold more than the 42 gallons that's standard in oil barrels. But it is clear that the price of a gallon of oil when it's below $50 comes nowhere close to covering the cost of the actual barrel. By the way, you'd think I would spell barrel right at least a quarter of the time. I mean, I know some... Th- I think we all can agree we know some basic things about barrel and the spelling thereof. It starts with a B. That's followed by an A. We know an R comes next. Doesn't have another R, hard to say. There's definitely an E after either that one or two Rs. That's not a layup. It could be a different vowel. But we're smart. We're educated. We know the second vowel in barrel is an E. And then it ends with some number of L's, definitely fewer than three. So here really are the only choices about how to spell barrel. B-A-R-E-L. B-A-R-R-E-L. B-A-R-R-E-L-L. B-A-R-E-L-L. So four choices. You should be right about 25% of the time. Yet I spell barrel correctly 4% of the time. For the record, it is spelled B-A-R-R-E-L. Now, I think it should be B-A-R-E-L-L. Because if the R's and the L's were reversed, there is no question that in the middle of the word, there'd be two L's. And there's no word at the end that ends with two R's. Maybe I'm wrong about that. If I am, to err is human. But then you'd be a baller, not a barrel, and we'd be in a different barrel of wax. As far as oil being the world's most valuable substance and the key to empires, even if oil's at 80 bucks, given how many gallons there are in a barrel, we're talking less than $2 a gallon. Milk sells for a lot more than $2 a gallon. Hell, every liquid sells for more than $2 a gallon. I went to Walmart to try to find anything that sells for less than $2 a gallon. Here's what I found. Vegetable oil, one gallon. $5.98. 5.98. Mrs. Butterworth's original syrup 1 gallon 7.98. Great Value distilled white vinegar 2.48. Colgin original recipe liquid smoke 14.61, but that only comes in a four pack. Zep professional broad spectrum floor disinfecting cleaner 1 gallon 9.95. So I said to myself, "All right, what's what's cheap? What's the cheapest liquid going?" Ah, Sunny D. But I was wrong. Sunny D orange peach or citrus punch. The great taste that kids go for, but not for less than $3.99 a gallon. They don't. All right. I finally found one. I found one substance that sells for less than $2 a gallon, which is what oil was three months ago. It's oils much less today. Are you ready for a substance on earth that costs less than $2 a gallon? Hawaiian punch. But not now, no, now oil, maker of markets, crowner of kings, whose price is measured in blood as well as dollars. Oil is worth much, much less than Hawaiian punch. And we all know that the barrel itself is the greatest prize of all. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi is more fun than a barrel of monkeys, but less fun than a keg of manatees. Just in turn, Claire tennis won't roll out the barrels of fun, but if asked nicely, might nudge along the barrels of contentment. Joe Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, marks his territory through urinating, defecating, and by scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. Or barrels. Andy Bowers, barrels along as executive producer of Slate Podcasts, go to facebook.com slash slategist. I could list all the stuff here, but I want to be terse in the name of They Might Be Giants, so I just want to list one. That is Facebook. It is important to building a community. Anyway, one time a photographer from People magazine took the entire cast of Barney Miller to Spanish Harlem in order to depict the actors in a New York-based sitcom in an urban environment. When asked afterwards specifically how his experience with Abe Vagoda was, the photographer replied, Oh, super easy. You know the phrase. It's like shooting fish in a barrio. Thanks for listening to me. But now let's have a listen to the first installment of a year's worth of They Might Be Giants songs. Dial a Song is back. The number to call starting tomorrow is 844-387-9692. The website to watch a video of these songs is dialasong.com. But now the only place to hear They Might Be Giants today is The Gist. With their first installment of the return of Dial a Song, we now reach for the button marked Erase. You and I